Hello, welcome to Moments of Clarity. My name is Matthew Sortino, and with me is Toby Kent. Well, I'm not quite with you, am I, Matt? No, we've got a you know something to admit today. Uh, it's another. It's another Moments of Clarity first. Why are you unwilling to see me in person these days, Toby? What's going on? It is a multifaceted, multifactored suite of issues, Matt, but fundamentally it's you. Do you know what? I know that there are we've both got so many things happening. So the fact that I am the issue means I'm just profoundly powerful um, to have that effect. If if I'm the most important factor uh, yeah. out of everything, it's pretty pretty I'm pretty wrapped about that sort of uh, assessment, that yeah, judgment. When you when you frame it like that, I wonder what I'm doing here, sitting on my own, when I could be with someone as omnipotent as your good self. <laughs> That's right. On that note, the fact that we are apart today, Toby, I'm going to get started um, by acknowledging the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people, who are the traditional owners of the land on which I stand. And I recognise their continuing connection to land, waters, and culture, and I also pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging. Yeah, and I'm down in the south of Melbourne, which means that while still on the lands, the Kulin peoples, I'm in the traditional lands, the Yalakut Willen clan of the Bunurung peoples of the Kulin nation. I simply like to pay elders uh, respects to elders past, present, emerging, and of course, any who are listening. Absolutely. Uh, so, Toby, what are we going to talk about today before we introduce our wonderful guest? Yeah, it was a really interesting conversation with Toby, actually. And before we get there, I, I was, uh, you lent me a book a while ago, uh, Johan Hari's Stolen Focus, which I've now stolen. But the great thing about my having had it so long is I've also now finished it. And it's a really interesting book. I've been thinking about it in a few ways. Uh, fundamentally, it really resonated. The central tenet, as suggested in the name Stolen Focus, or in the title Stolen Focus, is that there is a confluence of factors that means that at this moment in history, more than any other time, the competition for our attention, be that technological, social, chemical, uh, is more than, than ever before. And yet what Johan Hari, the author, does is also to highlight that at least for as long as we've been able to measure it, for so for well over 100 years, it seems that our attention spans have been getting ever shorter. And so what I thought started as a bit of a polemic kind of against the ills of social media and how the tech giants have been designed or have designed, I was going to say solutions, but I'm not sure, but anyway, have designed whatever the opposite, given the nature of the book, but the opposite of the solution is, um, have designed apps and, and technologies to continuously try to grab and hold on to our attention. And while that very much is the sort of first chunk of the book, Actually, what Johan Hari goes on to describe is how the degradation of the environment and the chemicals that we find uh, in our foods and in waters and in the air uh, are all having a contributory effect. And then 
the kind of diets that we have, everything from sugary caffeinated drinks through to uh, highly industrialized food manufacturing processes, uh, and then ending or sort of towards the end anyway, a whole raft of things that come about from from uh, prescription drugs uh, that people are taking and how all of this is coming together to, yeah, to mean that we are just less and less able to focus effectively with a whole range of consequential factors. And uh, I'll, I'll let you jump in, in a second, but I think the one of the interesting points that Hari builds towards is that at this moment in a time of climate change and uh, as he was writing or finishing the book, the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic was really unfolding. He said, we are faced with such challenges. We really need to focus. Uh, And yet we're, we're kind of eating ourselves, as it were, uh, in, in terms of just how we're just constantly distracted. And um, thank you for sharing it with me. Uh, I've probably done a really bad job of encapsulating what it's about. But it also, as I say, particularly when we get into the sort of drugs element, made me think of the conversation we've got coming up with Damon. Yeah, no, I thought it was a great synopsis by you, Toby. And it reminded me about all the elements um, of the book because I was more thinking social media and, you know, two or three of the other things that you touched on, but there was a multitude of factors about why our attention is lacking. And while you were talking, it it did bring up, you know, the prescription drugs element of of the the book and, and how that we'll have that discussion with Damon but also the COVID discussion that we had with Damon as well that will, you know, bring to our audience the first, I think, 14 minutes or so of the of the discussion went into COVID and the different responses and how, yeah, and we talk about harm reduction models in drugs and COVID and, and all of these different things. And when I was listening to Damon, just to, I will go back to, to Stolen Focus, but when I was listening to Damon, he made me, think differently about lockdowns and and sort of our response in Australia and and the response in other parts of the world. But when you were talking then, I look at lockdown for people like me. So I didn't have a funeral that I couldn't attend. I didn't have... I mean, I think uh, by the nature of them, I'm not sure you can ever quite attend your funeral. A funeral that I had to attend for somebody else. Um, <laughs> you know, I didn't have a, a long, you know, a, a, a love, a loved one overseas that I couldn't see. I mean, my brother was overseas and I love him. But um, in terms of, you know, a, a child that I couldn't get to, I, you know, I didn't lose my job. All of these factors allowed me to not experience the worst of it. But I did experience everything else along with everyone else, you know, the, I was locked in to my home, but what I took from it was an ability to start to focus, to, to stop my mind being overwhelmed by everything that's going on. The way I feel right now, Toby in life wasn't there with COVID. I was probably at my happiest, believe it or not, because I was able to meditate each day, exercise a lot, eat well, cook well, spend time with my loved ones that were in my home, you know, and I know I'm privileged and lucky enough to have had that happen. But 
when I was listening to Damon, it made me think, yeah, all the negatives. But now going back to the book, I'm like, if a, if a pandemic didn't let us get to a point where we were able to regain our focus enough or we were desperate to get back on in the into the rat race somehow what hope is there and also on top of that is that i was talking to someone recently that said they went to the doctor just complaining about a few things in their life you know kids are tough partners tough life's not not easy right now um do you have any strategies and instantly offered antidepressant medication you know the first time they've been in not a question about anything else just do you want some antidepressants and i'm and on those two things i'm just thinking what's going on like the stolen focus message is fantastic and i believe in everything johan hari is saying but i'm wondering if we're willing and able to actually help ourselves through our attention deficit problem that we have in a society not the medical diagnosed version, but the general society one. So in the, in the book, I, I think, and obviously we and all the listeners know that you are exceptional in that, but actually one of the things that Johan Hari talks about, and I think this, my instinct is I don't have data on this, but my instinct is while you may have found time to meditate and to focus, an awful lot of people were more drawn into social media. And what else, in a sense, was one meant to do? Um, when, you know, people, it was an opportunity or, or at least a means of feeling connected when we were profoundly disconnected. I know that for a couple of reasons, I started using a lot less social media during the pandemic one being i found it was unhelpful uh, I'm, I'm fortunate that by disposition i seem to have quite good mental health even when i've been through other less healthy things and, and had bad things happen to me but i did find that social media i was conscious of it not helping me during the lockdown period and the other thing was just really funny because uh, every time that Daniel Andrews, the Victorian Premier, announced another lockdown, I would start getting hate mail because of these most spurious and ridiculous connections that people were making, conspiracy theorists were making about because of my chief resilience officer role, which I had left, thus showing how informed they were, uh, and that it was I was somehow in cahoots with the global cabal and Daniel Andrews inflicting lockdown and vaccine controls on people. So anyway, those two factors meant that I just stopped looking and life was kind of better. What, what made you feel, I mean, you've explained why you stopped, but why do you think you were able to disconnect when others were drawn into it, even in many cases knowing that it was harming them, they couldn't look away? And we even had the term <laughs> doom scrolling, sorry, Toby. You know, doom scrolling came up and all these different things. You know, people labelled the problems and were still deeply involved in it. So I, I can't say why others... Well, yeah, I, I guess if you've got to go with the Johan Hari stuff, I can probably take a stab as to why others couldn't look away. One of them being that the... The, the, the technologies are designed to grab people's attention, be that through 
incessant alerts, be it through the likes and, and those kind of reactions that are designed to try to garner attention and a craving uh, for acknowledgement of, of anything that might, you might have posted. So for me, I think it goes to that, I, I think, fortunate disposition that I'm kind of quite aware of what's what I need to be mentally healthy. So there was that. And then less positively at heart, I'm, I, I'm so, I, I'd like to think I'm not a true Luddite, but I'm, I'm quite happy to switch off technology. Um, so for me, it was like, ah, oh, good. Now I've got a reason not to be on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And, and now at the time of recording, Elon Musk now owns Twitter, and I'm not sure whether that means I've got another reason to keep it switched off or whether we should see whether he uh, does save online democracy. I highly doubt that he'll save anything, Toby, but I could be proven wrong. Um, He's going to save the electric car. Yeah, yeah, he did. Anyway, that's a discussion for another day, an Elon discussion. An E-long discussion, I think it would have to be. <laughs> but um, but on on that note, yeah, I just want to clarify, you know, the technology was there. You know, I, I was on Zoom more than I've ever been, obviously, as a teacher as well, teaching classes, but just with people, phone calls all the time, keeping connected. I guess I had that luxury, but I knew social media was damaging. And I'd learned that, I guess, in the past from potentially being addicted and having a sense of identity because of an online presence and then having to remove that in the past and realizing that that's not a good thing. Um, So hopefully people are learning, but yeah, go on. I mean, and and I think, you know, we covered this in what we refer to as episode 50, which is what I interviewed you. And that was kind of the beginning of my becoming your co-host. But um, in that you spoke very candidly about, you know, one of the reasons for creating moments of clarity was as a counter to the slightly dark tunnel that you'd found yourself going down with the the scrolling and the online debates and the uh yeah i I don't think you found yourself trolling or being trolled particularly particularly but definitely a, a sense of engaging in online conversations that we're not really doing anything for you yeah absolutely and and on that um note of what seems to be the case. The Victorian elections are coming up, Toby, and there's a lot of discussion about the Americanization of the extreme ends of the of the discussion, at least that's what's it's being branded in the media, that we're seeing more violent rhetoric and, and more extreme ideas um, being accepted in the lead-up to this small state election in this little part of the world. But um, it seems to be happening everywhere. And lockdowns could be to blame for that so when damon who's going to discuss with us some of his you know what are the unintended consequences of this you know potentially yes we're trying to save you from this disease what are the other harms that are going to come down the track because of this and we get into that discussion and this could be one of them and also i mean he's an expert in well, harm reduction with drug use or harm reduction in relation to drug policy. And yeah, I think more of that latter one, because the first one sounded like reducing harm by taking drugs. Maybe we can. Maybe we'll all be better off. Well, I mean, I, I think and we didn't test this with Damon. So for anyone listening, there's a massive disclaimer coming with what I'm about to say, because we did not discuss it with Damon. But 
at least not specifically. But I think, although I was being tongue-in-cheek when I said about reducing harm with drugs, I think he was saying we have to really question how we use drug policy and to what ends and why. Uh, and so I would imagine that in some cases that used sensitively and in certain circumstances, actually, there might be a case for, for using drugs. I don't know if it's in Stolen Focus or in Lost Connections, the book I've read since reading Stolen Focus, which is Johan Hari's other or one of his other books. And he talks about psychedelics and the importance of that in therapy and, and you know, actually helping people in their lives and and we had such a, a ban, you know, th- this idea of a zero tolerance to any drug, including things like psilocybin and magic mushrooms and LSD and things like that, which are known to be potentially helpful in people with various mental illness or um, problems with their mental health and then also enlightening people with spiritual insp- experiences too, which can actually be just a positive in mental health too for all the negatives that might come along with misuse as well. but Yeah, and I, and certainly I think that one of the things we did discuss with Damon and the risk of sounding obsessed with Johan Hari, but, I mean, that was part of the framing of this sort of pre-conversation, is it's just nuts the way that we have said some things are illegal and have punished people and in, in some countries, literally with death, uh, and I think Damon is so insightful talking about the unintended consequences of supporting various drug policies around the world uh, in terms of human rights abuses and other kind of horrors that happen as a result of us as, certainly in this case Australia, but other OECD-type economy countries. Uh, and yeah, and, and what happens to people as a result of that. But also, the flip side, uh, in terms of, and this goes back to your friend who just went to see the doctor saying, have you got any strategies? I'm feeling a bit stressed because life's a bit stressful at the moment uh, and, uh, and being suggested she should take antidepressants. So this massive in- industry that is legal and has, you know, particularly in the US with the opioid crisis, but around the world has claimed thousands and thousands, I think, actually millions of lives and that's another form of drug policy which we're kind of okay with because it was driven by big business now we're not okay with it we're seeing you know various lawsuits coming out and so on but shocking really and i think the for the first time places like the us and the uk went down with their life expectancy and a a big part of that is because of the opioid epidemic uh, that's occurring. I mean, is that the right word for it? It's basically, once again, a bit like gambling, a bit like social media, it is using the biggest brains in marketing strategy to make people feel like they need something that they probably don't, something that's probably harmful. In some cases, it's useful to be on a drug for a mental health, you know, for anxiety or depression, you may need to have something for or a it. Painkiller, yeah. I mean, the opioids are there, particularly yes. chronic, chronic pain or, or acute pain, and, and and in a certain context for a certain period, absolutely has a place. Yeah, as does maybe having legalized betting stops the underground betting stuff that goes on, and you know, maybe we have oh, to have betting, much more betting, underground betting, uh, gambling. Yeah. I, I was wondering what was wrong with betting. 
And, um, <laughs> you know, I'm sick of people <laughs> taking sheets down into the sewers under under cities. Yeah. It's, um... <laughs> it's a dark, dark market in the Duna world. <laughs> Sorry, gambling is another one, I mean, and another huge debate. We might touch on it one day. But, you know, something, once again, that feels like everything is designed to make everyone addicted to it and 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 feel like they need to do something that isn't really beneficial and and I feel like social media yes a little bit of use here and there but it's it's stealing our attention so you know go out and read stolen focus if you haven't already um people and I just I think it's a great book you, to just hey you thought sounded like you kind of lost track there I was wondering if you're having problem focusing <laughs> I do. I'm having <laughs> some serious issues focusing. It is quite late at night, Toby. You've got me. You got me out of bed. I was asleep for two hours. Seven PM is my bedtime now. Um, no, no, no. Folks, uh, sleep is another big thing he mentions. Anyway, isn't it? Yep. You know, food, sleep, all of these issues discussed. But what we are here to do today is have a discussion with Damon Barrett. Uh, yeah, so nothing about I, you and Harry. Sorry, Damon. No, doesn't get mentioned on, at all. And in this case, he's much um, he, he, well. He's seriously well equipped to discuss the things we discussed today. I mean, um, Damon Barrett is an expert, an absolute expert in the fields that we will touch on. But before I introduce what Damon does, is there anything that you'd like to finish up on uh, here, or even reflect on about our conversation with Damon? Ah, oh, sorry, I'm just checking Snapchat. Who's your biggest streak that you've got with? I think that's what the kids call it these days. Oh, really? You know, basically, you have to Snapchat every day with someone or you lose your streak. Ah, right. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you believe uh, that? It's like inbuilt for these kids to and adults to become addicted. You know, I can't lose my streak. Yeah, so that's exactly the kind of thing that... Anyway, we're back. So um, I'm going to interrupt myself, Matt. Uh, Focus, Toby. No, thanks, but I, I think it's time for everyone to have a chance to listen to the actual Damon uh, talk rather than us trying to paraphrase him. If, for listeners, I, I'd encourage you to stick to up towards the end because some of the insights that Damon gets to around the unintended consequences of our drug policies are really eye-opening. Yeah, so Damon Barrett works at the University of Gothenburg as a senior lecturer in human rights. He's also an associate senior lecturer and director of the master's program in global health. And he really goes and, and discusses the combination of global health, public health, drug policy, harm reduction, and human rights. And he's basically, you know, right at the the intersection of all of these incredible fields and has, you know, incredible expertise in all of these these areas. Another thing that he has done is also he's a director but co and co-founder of the International Center on Human Rights and Drug Policy. So really thrilled to be able to bring Damon Barrett to you all today. So enough from us. Here's Damon Barrett. Damon, welcome to Moments of Clarity. No, thanks for the invitation. Looking forward to talking to you guys. Damon, if you don't mind giving us a little bit of a biography of, um, you know, what you're, what you're, you know, a little bit about you and what you're up to today. 
Well, literally today I'm starting as a, a lecturer at the School of Global Studies in, in the University of Gothenburg here in Sweden. Prior to that, I've been working at the School of Public Health. And that makes sense because my work has really, uh, it's been at this crossover of public health or global health and, and human rights. Um, with a focus for the last 15 years on, on um, drug policy, um, harm reduction in particular, but also the various human rights questions that come up in relation to, to global drug control. Yeah, I'm sitting here in Sweden, but, but you can hear I'm, I'm not Swedish, I'm, I'm Irish, but I um, haven't lived in Ireland now for almost as long as I did live there. But uh, yeah, by background, I, um, I began as, as, a, as a lawyer, uh, although one that never finished training, and and uh, I guess this will later come to to some of the kind of stuff your podcast gets to. I made some decisions about what I wanted to do and what I wanted to to be. That eventually led me into to child rights work, uh, and from child rights into drug policy, which is uh, a direction that not a lot of people I've met along the way have taken, and it's given me a certain insight into the into the field that I I, I hope has been helpful. But right now, I'm, uh, after quite a few years in the, the NGO sector, I, I've moved into academia. And even though I'm in my mid-40s, I'm, I'm considered a, a junior researcher in, in academia. But um, yeah, I find that quite rewarding. And, I, and uh, in particular, I, I, I enjoy teaching the human rights questions that come up in relation to global health, um, especially to public health students who, who, um, who need more of that education. And I think the Maybe the pandemic <laughs> has shown us even more that that's, that's a critical question. And can you just elaborate on that a little, David? What specifically about the pandemic? I mean, on, on one level it's kind of obvious, but, I mean, it's, in other ways it's not, given your focus around drugs and... Uh, and, and well, I, yeah, and so no, that's a good question, because I, I was really thinking about what we could learn from global drug policy for the way the pandemic was being managed. One of the problems with human rights and something like a pandemic of that scale is that both of them are so broad that the question of you know what links human rights to the pandemic is everything. So that's that's a bit of a challenge. So you need to be a little bit more specific, uh, or at least I do. So we need to look at specific things. One one of the one of the things that we do in harm reduction, which if if people are not aware of that phrase, harm reduction is is a an approach to drug use and drug problems that that aims to reduce the health and social harms associated with drug use without necessarily requiring that people stop using drugs. Um, doesn't mean that abstinence is precluded as a goal, but it's not a, uh, a precondition of, of measures of success in somebody's life. And there's lots of pioneers of that approach in Australia, I must say. With, so I was thinking about that with regard to, to the pandemic. In the early days, so March, good Lord, how long has this been going on? March 2020, I guess, we're think, I was thinking about this. And I wrote a short piece that I put out on Medium when I was still on Twitter. I've dumped Twitter because I think it's toxic, so I got off there eventually. But when I was still on there, I wrote a piece on Medium where I was trying to think about harm reduction and the pandemic and what we've learned from drugs. And one of the things that we have to do in harm reduction is separate out drug harms from drug policy harms. Mm -hmm. uh, what are the things that drugs can do and what are the things that our responses to drugs can do? It sounds very simple, but it's a very important thing to do. And then I started reading headlines like X amount of children in developing countries will not go to school because of COVID. Or X amount of people are going hungry because of COVID. Well, COVID doesn't cause hunger. 
And COVID doesn't cause people to not go to school unless they're sick. Our responses do. And um, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that you've got some kind of um, prescription for what to do when something like this comes around, but that at least we have to take responsibility for the choices that we make. So if we look at uh, what became very, very controversial over time, which was Sweden's approach to, to COVID, what was unusual for me at, uh, in the early days of that was that Sweden was not the one, the country doing something different. The lockdowns were the different thing at the time. So that, w- that was of interest at the beginning. But also, I started realizing that Sweden was basically adopting a harm reduction approach uh, to COVID, which is unusual because Sweden would not adopt traditionally a harm reduction approach to drugs. It's taken a what we'd call an elimination strategy to drugs. Let's use COVID language here. This is where I was seeing the crossovers. We had elimination strategies, let's say New Zealand, and mitigation strategies, let's say Sweden's. The elimination strategy being we can get rid of this thing and it won't take hold, it won't take root. The mitigation strategy being we're stuck with this virus, let's face it, uh, and let's try and mitigate its harms over the long term in a sustainable way, which was what Sweden's thinking was. Now, I think that's by and large the right thing to do, but it doesn't mean Sweden didn't make mistakes. Um, But again, that's about taking some form of accountability for the decisions that were made. And I think what's interesting about that is then you start, for want of a better phrase, pointing the finger in the right direction. Uh, You start saying, okay, well, what was caused by our decisions and what was caused by our indecision or our omissions and what's caused by this illness in its own, in its own, its, its own right, its own kinds of um, effects. And I started to think that, that a harm reduction response to this kind of virus, can, can, it could learn a lot from what we've done with regard to drugs. Because what we've learned with regard to drugs is that an elimination strategy overall was disastrous and remains disastrous in many places. Whereas learning to reduce the harm associated with these substances that are not going anywhere uh, has delivered real positives. Now, this is not to say that th- there's there's always a case against lockdowns, um, but the negative consequences of them also need to be mapped out, which is a, a, another way of accounting. And I think that's the thing that wasn't done with regard to drugs. I hope I'm not kind of rambling a bit here, but with regard to drugs, you've got certain me- you've got certain outcomes, as far as I can see, that have to do with how many people use drugs in a given year? How many drugs you seized? How many hectare, what hectareage of, of, of crops is currently under production and so on? But the measures you take to achieve those outcomes might produce certain side effects that you also need to account for. And similar, I think, with regard to COVID, that mortality and morbidity associated with the virus and, and, and with COVID definitely have to be tracked. But we have to start taking account for then all of the side effects, including for public health, uh, that come as a consequence of the decisions we made. And that's separating out virus harms, I think, from policy harms. So I, I do, th- and th- I wasn't the only one. There was a really good article in The Atlantic, I think it might have been as early as January or February uh, 2020, calling for a harm reduction approach to the pandemic. And, and you see it. You saw it in relation to the protests, the Black Lives Matter protests, where people were talking about how do we protest in a safer way, right? So let's not ban protests, because that's another question we have to get to, which is the consequences of certain decisions for for institutions and democracy itself. But uh, let's find a way to support each other to, to do this important civic duty, really, in a safe way. 
how, how do we get people back to work and kids back to school in a safer way and so on? These are all the kinds of things that a harm reduction approach would, would try and consider. So yeah, that's so already. So I really have been thinking about um, what we can learn from drug policy or the the successes and failures in responses to drugs for for the pandemic. And uh, I actually think, with regard to human rights, some of the best commentary with regard to this pandemic has come from UN AIDS, mm-hmm. um, where they said, "Look, we have an ongoing HIV pandemic around the world, even though it doesn't catch the the attention that it should." Uh, and we've learned a hell of a lot with regard to human rights from that. I mean, HIV activists are really the pioneers of the health and human rights movement. And and uh, quite a lot of that maybe has been um, forgotten with regard to everything from inequalities to what it means to stigmatize people with a disease and so on. Quite a lot there. So I think there's a, there's, there's a, lot, of, a lot of things to be learned and I'm not sure they really were. And maybe it will take years to unpack it. But with the urgency of the pandemic and what was seen to be novel, and and very 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 threatening. Uh, I didn't see sufficient evidence that governments were taking human rights ex- very very seriously. So that's fascinating, and the questions that you've sort of posed um, make me think a lot because the normal approach, uh, well, the approach of elimination or a strategy of really uh, minimising the amount of COVID cases was taken up by maybe the more progressive left-wing leaning sort of side of politics in Australia, the US and New Zealand and other places where, you know, we've got to listen to the science, we've got to listen to the health professionals, we've got to um, make sure that we're focused on health at all costs. Don't worry about the economy, you know, or, you know, in, in other words, don't worry about, um, you know, because you're scared of wearing a mask, whatever it might be, this is what we're doing. Mm. But on the same level, those same people are the ones that would be looking for harm reduction in drugs or in other areas, looking at the more nuanced approach and and, and a more um, overarching view of this. So it's funny how yeah. the politics sort of shifted, at least here, you know, away from looking yeah, at no, human Yeah, no, I see it. Rights. And I think it's unfortunate, and I'm sure everyone would agree, it's unfortunate how politicised certain of these decisions came such that it especially if, you know, unfortunately, we have to look to the U.S. because it's very obvious there. I, I don't know as much about the Australian situation, but in a similar way to guns and abortion and other things, you could guess. You could guess what people would think of COVID restrictions. Just, and that's not a great place to be in terms of critical thinking. In my mind, I, I, I hope people are like this. My mind's changed a few times over the the course of this. You know, I still don't know where I stand on on vaccine mandates, for example. Um, so I think, and I think that's probably a good thing. So that's a very, very serious question. It's not. A, it's definitely not as easy as it might look to a side that's either completely against it or completely for it. You know, and it's it's really difficult to to unpack all of the questions there. I do understand the the reactions to the pandemic. I do get it. Um, but it is important to say that, like some some people who've who've a long history of activism in health and human rights. Um, got together and wrote a very early letter. Now, they're all US-based, saying just be careful with the amount of power you're about to wield. I think one of the big lessons, and I'm sure everyone sees it now, from this pandemic is that public health can be a very, very strong um, display and execution of state power. And this is where human rights are implicated. It's not that different from, from counterterrorism. 
right? The state has a very strong responsibility to protect its citizens. And those, those, those threats could come from terrorism, they can come from health threats. In this case, it was, was a health threat. So the state has a very strong responsibility there. That's a very key element of the social contract. But at the same time, human rights are there to, in some way, for all of their weakness in places, to try and regulate or get in the way of the relationship between the individual and the state or say marginalized groups in the state and so on, that's exceptionally important to, to, to take as seriously as controlling the, the virus, controlling the threat itself. Because those are very long-standing, very hard-won institutional norms that we've built up. And if we erode them to such an extent that, I believe in Australia for a while it became politically negative to not restrict people's liberties. Okay. I think if you find yourself in a situation like that, we have to really pause and think about where we're going. Which is not to say let's do nothing about these threats we face. That's obviously not the case. But I think the job of the human rights field is to ask the critical questions, even if they get overruled by, say, the public health committee or by the politician or whoever else. But they should be posing those constitutional and human rights questions about, okay, can you really control people's movement for this length of time? Is that really proportionate to the threat we face? And so on. And be ready to be overruled and be ready... But I, I think the role of the human rights field is to, is, to, is to be there as a critical breath on the neck of those wielding that kind of power, and so, whether it's terrorism or public health or whatever. Can I just ask, Simon, uh, I've absolutely loved the first 10 minutes or whatever we've been of, of this conversation, but just to pick up on that phrase, you know, the role of the human rights field, uh, mm. can you just give uh, a bit more sense about some of the work that you do uh, and the interplay between human rights uh, and drugs and young people. Mm. Uh, so, so that side of things, we may well come back to... What yeah, is no, that's totally fine. I'll tell you a little bit about uh, my, my background in relation to harm reduction and human rights more specifically. So I was, <laughs> I was working in, in Save the Children. I started there actually as a fundraiser, I was, or rather I was an administrator. I, was, I moved from being an ordinary lawyer into dealing with Save the Children UK's wills and, and legacies department. So loads and loads of money and, and donations coming through that have lots of legal requirements with them. But it really wasn't for me and I ended up working in the, the child rights team instead. There's a backstory to that, it involves a master's degree in the middle, but... Um, the, the position I had was coming to an end. It was, it was a contracted position, and I was just looking for any human rights-related job. And this organization at the time called the International Harm Reduction Association, uh, some of the original founders of which are from Australia, um, had a job opening. And I, I got that job, but I didn't really know what harm reduction was, to be honest. This was 2007. But it really once you get into it, it really captures your imagination um, because you start realizing... It's not just rewarding, but it's super interesting from a human rights perspective to look at the way drugs are dealt with in society. Because you can take it from a very local level. You can look at the human rights issues involved with the overdose crisis or with HIV or with treatment for drug dependence or other issues. Or you can look at it in terms of national policy and budgeting, but you can also look at it in terms of international policy because there's international law relating to drugs, which from a human rights lawyer's perspective is super interesting. And it crosses over with all sorts of other aspects of international relations. So you, you can, there's all sorts of ways to look at the drugs question. Development, security, health, and so on. All of which would have, have human rights connections. So our task in 
what was then the International Harm Reduction Association. It's now called Harm Reduction International. And it runs a big conference, I should say, every few years. And this next year, it's, it's, it's in Melbourne uh, in April. Are you going to come? I think, I, I, I don't think I can justify the carbon footprint, but we've submitted an abstract for our digital uh, no. uh, presentation. We'll but, organize the yacht, um, the, uh, the, wind, the wind-powered yacht for you. <laughs> it just take me about six months to get there. But <laughs> Yeah, so it was, um, our task was really to make this connection between harm reduction and, and, and human rights, in particular something called the right to health which is um, an internationally recognized right going all the way back to the constitution of the World Health Organization. So what we did really was we tried to reframe what was a very, had become, I think, a very, very technical medical and public health question, this idea of harm reduction, especially related to HIV prevention. So in relation to um, the fact that quite a lot of HIV transmission has to do with um, unsterile injecting equipment, and unsafe injecting practices, the question was, okay, if that's, that's, that's clearly a public health issue, but what if it's also a human rights issue? Uh, and what happens if we reframe it in that way and start looking at what would human rights mechanisms, uh, for example, in the United Nations or, or national human rights ombudsmen and so on, what would happen if they start looking at this question, at the lack of access to needle exchanges in so many parts of the world and at the way people who use drugs are treated um, because of the situations they found themselves in. Uh, at the fact that a primary response to, to drug use is to criminalize the behavior or necessary consequences of the behavior, such as possessing, dr- possessing drugs. What happens if that's not just seen as a criminal justice or a public health question, but a human rights one? And that was a, a big part of our job. So we spent a lot of our time raising awareness among the, the kind of standard human rights NGOs although some had been engaged in this question for a long time, like Human Rights Watch, and also in trying to engage the UN human rights system in drugs questions, because it hadn't been involved at all. And there's a whole other UN part that deals with drugs, and they just didn't talk to each other. So we spent a lot of time trying to bridge those kinds of gaps and reframe the question at that NGO. And it takes a lot of time, but it's I think it's proven to be effective in, in, in those terms. On the ground, now granted, I can't claim that we made any changes for any individuals. That's not the kind of advocacy we were doing. But in trying to change the way the thing was talked about, I think together with all of our allies, lots of people involved, I think it's, it's proven to have been quite good. Um, one, one of the examples I'll, I'll give is we were a small, pretty small public health NGO, really, and we, one of our first projects was to work on the death penalty for drug offences. Well, one of the most famous cases of, uh, that Australia has been involved with is the Bali Nine, which most people are familiar with, I think, which is where um, nine young men, I can't remember how many were Australian citizens, but quite a few, were, were trafficking between Indonesia and Australia and were caught, and some of them were sentenced to death in Indonesia, and two of them, uh, Andrew Chan and Myron Sukumaran, were executed there a few years ago for those of crimes. And one of the things when we were at our small public health NGO was, well, if we want people to realize that drug policy is a human rights issue, how would they, maybe HIV mightn't be the entry point and maybe drug use might not be the entry point, but human rights, the human rights field definitely knows that the death penalty is on its turf. That's definitely a human rights question. So for the first time, our NGO said, well, let's document 
If we can, how many people around the world are sentenced to death and executed for drug offences? Which we did. And it was something, and that, that the NGO I've long left has, has carried on with that work, and it still does this. It was, at the time, I think it was 32 countries or territories have the death penalty for drugs on the books. In our first report, I think we estimated that something like a thousand people a year are executed for drug offences. Now, that's, that has to be taken with a grain of salt because, or a pinch of salt, because some countries keep their death penalty statistics a secret. So China being the big one. Uh, but nonetheless, a lot of people, and way more than for other kinds of offenses. So if not the most common reason people are sentenced to death, it's one of the most common reasons people are sentenced to death is for drug offenses, which we thought was very, very important to point out. And then the other thing we started to point out was, okay, well, they have the death penalty for drugs, but it's usually a very good indicator of a very repressive drug policy framework which will filter down. They'll have very strong prison sentences. They'll have very strong, very potentially very strong, uh, very uh, problematic policing practices. They likely are not very favorable towards progressive harm reduction tactics. And then the other question we look to is, okay, here's all of these drug enforcement efforts, especially cross-border drug enforcement efforts, and we thought, where are they getting the money from? Their own money but also donors from other parts of the world. So the Balinian involved the Australian Federal Police. And the question became, okay, what's the responsibility of the Australian Federal Police if they assist in the arrest of their own citizens who then get killed? Oh, we asked the same question of European Union governments who were helping Iran with its cross-border trafficking efforts and European and Canadian donors who were helping uh, in the China cross-border efforts and that led to a significant reduction in funds coming through, through the United Nations to UN efforts in the Iran-Afghanistan border. Um, now, I believe there's been an uptick in executions again, but for a while there was a 90% reduction in, in executions in Iran. And our colleagues at Iran Human Rights say that a, a big part of that was, was the, the donor pullout. Because when it's pointed out to them, this is oversight. Sometimes these things just need a, sh a light shone on them. You think... Yeah, of course, let's control drugs going across borders. But then you look at what are those borders? Iran was executing a lot of people. China executes a lot of people. Vietnam. Lots of these countries, right? So the question became, I mean, the, the prison that Chan and Sukumaran were held in and executed in was funded by the European Union, right? But for counterterrorism, most people there, it was funded by the EU and the United States for, for terrorism, but most of the people there are there on drug offenses. The question became, again, for accountability, what are the, what are the consequences of our enforcement efforts? Because it's not the only good we're trying to pursue in the world. We're also trying to have a world where people are not executed, because that's a display of state power that we've decided we can't tolerate. Um, so there's a really clear connection between uh, human rights and drugs. And if that's the connection, well, then let, let's look at other things. Let's look at torture and interrogations of drug suspects. Uh, or prison conditions, so much prison overcrowding has to do with the sheer amount of people in there for drug offences. You can look at extrajudicial killings, or just what, which is the human rights term for murder, basically. So in, you've got the Thai war on drugs from the early 2000s. You've got the Philippines situation over the last few years. Those kinds of things are straight up human, obvious human rights abuses. Arbitrary detention in the form of so-called drug detention centres, 
Well, they're actually in their, in their home countries, such as Vietnam, Laos, China. They're often called treatment centers, but there's no real treatment to speak of. People are locked up for months or years because they either use drugs or they're suspected of using drugs. And Human Rights Watch and the Open Society Foundations have documented some very serious human rights violations in those centers. Again, we actually found donor money going to those because, yeah, drug treatment sounds like a good idea. But you need, to, you need to scrutinize that too. So there's all these connections with human rights and drugs, from the death penalty all the way through to, to health interventions. It's funny, Damon, a lot of my work uh, has been around sustainable development in the last close to a decade around resilience. And one of the reasons I love... Mm those fields and particularly resilience is because of you take a word as simple as resilience and it has so many dimensions in exactly the same way you said you look at harm reduction uh, and you could be working at multiple different levels and across multiple different planes if i were an excuse excuse me for being so simplistic but um, as somebody who's has a passing interest in human rights at best so in no way skilled or educated in it mm-hmm. but it seems I, I kind of just wondering if there's space to explore whether if a fundamental part of human rights thinking is as basic as freedom from and freedom to mm-hmm. and when you put I mean if you're sort of willing to play around with that journeyman's assumption where the harm reduction and drugs policy bit fits into that because you've obviously got on the one hand a, a society that is free from the detrimental effects, side effects of, of drug abuse, uh, crime and so on that may go with that. Or the freedom to do with as I wish and put what I want into my body. And that's just you know, a couple of examples. You, I'm sure there's depth to it. Is, there, is it possible to explore in terms as simple as that? Is that part of the thinking? I think you can. You can explore it in that way, definitely. Uh, I mean, it does become complicated. If you, if you look at what's the kind of contemporary human rights uh, normative framework, it's sometimes called, the, the international, say the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, we'll just start there. It's got both of those kinds of rights in there, freedoms from and freedom to. Um, but it gets politically complicated, of course, because you get into potentially competing political philosophies or ideas where the state should be organized. You got people who would say, let's just stick with health. You got people who would say, you can't have a right to health care. You've got to provide that for yourself. The state should be small. People shouldn't be requiring too much of it. And then there's other people who would say, well, hang on a second. The state pays for the fire service and it pays for refuse collection. Why is health care so different? And there's an argument to be made, and, and I think I would make it, that providing adequate health care is a way to help people exercise their freedoms to do things. The way to, uh, there's a really good summary for that. There was, there was a, the, the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa used to say, no bread without freedom and no freedom without bread, right? It's the kind of connection between these sorts of rights in, in kind of jargon form. They call them interdependent and interrelated. And I think that makes, that makes a degree of sense, but you can't, you can't avoid that you're getting into political philosophy if you talk about human rights, that you're going to, you're going to rub up against say, a libertarian worldview, if you start talking about uh, free at the point of healthcare delivery for, for everybody, and that you might start rubbing up against different kinds of worldviews if you start talking about absolute freedom of speech. I, I tend to think the two are connected in various ways. 
in that there are certain things that the state has to provide in order for people to live a life of dignity. And in order, in order to be able to exercise your freedoms, it's not a bad idea to be literate, right? It's not a bad idea to be not curtailed by having to work three jobs and go to a food bank. If, if that kind of... St- you're not really free if that's the situation you're living in. And if it requires a larger state to be able to provide the circumstances in which people can genuinely be free, then that's, then that's to, be, to be sought after. Of course, there are others that would claim that the state in its current form can't do that. <laughs> but, but you're right, that is a way to look at it. It's an important way to look at it. And it's an important way to, going back to our beginning conversation, it's another, it, it could be also a way to, to look at some of the pandemic responses as well. Because a lot of the debate was, what, uh, was about what people are free to do. Or free when, of course, from, being free from an external threat is not a bad way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah and that's, that's interesting with that. It was often the framing that would be the mindset. I, I want to be free from disease when I go to do the essential shopping or work at my essential job. Um, I don't want to potentially get this disease and die or get sick or set, spread it to a loved one that I have to look after as well mm-hmm. um, versus the idea of, well, I also want to be able to uh, live the life. I, I was about to start a business and I put all my money into it and now it's I'm not allowed to go there or, you know, my schooling's affected, my, my friendships, whatever it might be. So that's the COVID response and I guess the same can be said for healthcare in general that you mentioned a couple of months back on the podcast I spoke about a book that I was reading by Timothy Snyder called Our Malady, which was about the American healthcare system. And mm-hmm. he spoke often about the competing the competing ideologies really between this idea that America is a free country that should, um, you know, give every citizen the ability to live as freely as possible, you know, as an as a ideology. Yet mm. healthcare was often impossible to get and if it, you did get health care, you were unlucky enough to need health care, you'd be in debt for life in many cases or, or have subpar care if you didn't have the money mm. for it. And um, he spoke about that as an attack on freedom and he was trying to link these two ideas together that, you know, for the country that says we want to be free, we're, we're really suffering in the way that we deliver and offer health care. We can mm-hmm. cure illnesses and, you know, um, stop you from dying but you're not healthy. And you mentioned at the start the idea of the right to be healthy and it's being so... Ah, well, it's not actually the right to be healthy. Okay. Um, because cause nobody can guarantee that for you, mm-hmm. right? But what you are, the right to health, just to, just to clarify that, is about something, the way it's phrased is the right to the highest attainable standard of health. And it's really about health systems and responses. Um, but so, for example, it, it's not a human rights violation that I, say, contract HIV. But it would be a human rights violation where in the face of a HIV epidemic, the state does nothing about it and is unwilling to provide me with treatment that's available and so on. That would be the problem. But the condition of being unhealthy is not is, is kind of something the state can't guarantee. Yeah. So it's kind of explicitly not to be healthy. But at the same time, uh, there is a lot of debate about what a right to health should extend to. Because if you think about it, it could be anything from, from having, and people do argue this, that, that you know, in order to be really healthy, you need a house, a home, right? That's a, a, an approach in harm reduction too that, that you might have heard of is, is uh, housing first. That people will get better if they're housed. <laughs> That's one thing. Um, it could be, you know, a clean environment, in which case the whole response to climate change could be part of that right. So you, it, there's a lot of boundary work to be done around that right and what, it could, what, what, what we're claiming against the state. But I think the freedom from and freedom to is, is, is helpful, 
because it not only helps kind of think through um, the clash between those two things sometimes, but also it's nice to have a, a Toby. It's not it's not oversimplified. It's nice to have a simplified heuristic to enter into these things. Well, that's um, very generous of you. So let me uh, let me carry on with my simplistic line of questioning. If I were a gambling person, which I'm not, because I'm not very good at it. I, I would bet that you had not been asked this you, that you had been asked this question many times before, but um, given given what you do, uh, mm. the global approaches and some of the thinking, pro legalization of drugs or mm-hmm. a more nuanced response. <laughs> it's all the, the, it's always a more nuanced response. I don't think you ever get anybody that just says, "Of course, I'm 100 percent for," because it depends on the model of it. I'm pro-ending prohibition, I would say, and then the model for doing that is, is, is the big question because there can always be downsides that don't conform to the reasons we wanted to end prohibition in the first place. Um, can, I, can I jump in just to add to your question, which might help me avoid asking the next follow-up question. You can answer it in one, mm-hmm. Damon. So I love the way you frame that, very simple, and I'm going to add the complication here. <laughs> um, you know, the idea of what is the state after when it goes for an elimination or prohibition? Is What is the incentive for the state or for the people in power to make that call? Why is it seemingly so immoral and looked down upon, you know, a society that takes drugs? You know, there's a lot of people in, in high places taking certain drugs. Why is it that we... Um, we sort of differentiate between recreational, casual, you know, normal drug behaviour and addiction so much to the point where we're willing to completely isolate and eliminate these people from society, whether it's through prison, homelessness, you know, um, whatever. Sorry. No, this hand went like this is this is Damon's interview, but it's more insidious than that. Well, no, that's that's no, that's 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 a good question. I'd say what we have is. Um, a follow-on, but also a different question. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll talk to Toby's question for a moment and then remind me about that because I think we do need to talk about it. So I would say pro-ending prohibition, and that's the way... Um, there's a really great organization based in the UK called Transform, and they've been working on legalization, legalization issues for decades now, and, and they produce very important guides on what to do from a policy perspective about this. And I think they would say, and I think they're right, is that legalization is a process. It's not it's not an end. It's the process of ending prohibition. And then the regulatory model that you choose at the end of that is they they, they can be various types. So Uruguay for cannabis has a state monopoly model, which is not dissimilar from the way Sweden sells alcohol above 3.5%, right? Uh, the states that have, leg- that have uh, legally regulated cannabis in the U.S., there, there's important differences between some of those. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not hugely detailed on those, but there are there is um, comparative articles out there on what are those differences. And what is planned, though, and what people are taking very seriously, is to track outcomes depending on those different regulatory models to see to see what happens. Um, and there's ups and downs, and and you can see this in in um, I believe in Colorado there was an increase in hospitalizations of children due to accidental intake of edibles, for example. Now, all of them left hospital in a very short period of time and they were fine, but that's not a good outcome. We don't want to see that, right? So that there's something going on there. Many people complain that the racial justice questions associated with the war on drugs 
have not been resolved by legalization in the U.S., and I think that's a huge thing to take up because one of the big arguments for legalization was the racism of the war on drugs, right? So, so that's really important. There's justice for small-scale farmers in the global south that needs to happen with any kind of any kind of regulatory framework for cannabis needs to deal with who's been growing with this stuff. Do they now all of a sudden get left out because big companies can buy up large swathes of land? And leave out the farmers that have been doing this for all of these generations, but just been basically vilified for it and left out of development for it. So these questions are all coming up now. Um, the Transnational Institute in, in the Netherlands does some fantastic work with growers' organizations on, on, on this kind of stuff, as do others. And, uh, the, you know, the, there's growers' organizations themselves that we've met along the way. And by the way, human rights comes into this too. We've got a lot of work on business and human rights out there that can be learned from as to what, what, kind, of, what kind of things do we think about in a post-prohibition world uh, from a human rights perspective. I'm, I'm actually editing a book with my, my friend and colleague Rick Lyons, uh, which is Harm Reduction and Human Rights in Post-Prohibition Scenarios, just now, It'll come out next year hopefully. But we've got essays from different perspectives in different parts of the world about what do we look at when, if, if, if the current prohibition problem is lifted off of this, what are the human rights questions and the harm reduction questions we then ask? So yeah, I think uh, pro-ending pro prohibition, but then the model for how that's done has to be very carefully handled. And I, I think we have to make sure to avoid caricatures of what that would be. Because nobody is suggesting, I hope nobody would, that, that you just kind of replicate what happened with tobacco and you know, front load sales of cigarettes above the cash desk at the supermarket, you know, as a form of choice architecture, right? So nudging towards cigarettes, what a terrible idea that is, right? So not that, but, but what instead? Given that um, we now have a few things going on uh, with cannabis, what can we do with MDMA? What can we do with other kinds of substances? There's a lot of, I, the way I try and think about it, again, to, to put a kind of simplified metaphor, I guess, here is if you imagine regulation like a toolbox, prohibition is the hammer. But once you use it, you close the toolbox because no other tools are possible. So you kind of have to, I, I think legal regulation, ending prohibition is like putting the hammer aside for the moment and seeing what other tools are available in order to, to try and... Um, reduce as much harm as possible associated with drugs. And some would say to try and maximize the pleasure side of it as well. A taboo that is often not talked about. People do drugs most often because they really like it. Mm. And, and according to data from the UN, about one in 10 people who use drugs develop, and that's all drugs, so it's a lot, right? Might develop some kind of problem with it, but it's, a very, it's, a, it's, not, it's not the majority by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. And, and perhaps um, it would be even less if it was uh, more regulated or, or more education rather than this fear tactics that go towards Well, that's it. hard to know. Um, I, I, I tend to think that uh, regulation probably won't do much about uh, addiction, but it might lift some of the stigma associated with it. Now, it might. I don't know because there's still a ton of stigma associated with alcoholism. So do you know what I mean? I, I don't know if it would. I think you still have a lot of things to deal with that... that you will still need harm reduction. You'll still need drug treatment. You'll still need to deal with people who, for lots of reasons, self-medicate and get into some kind of trouble with their drugs. But maybe we can free up a lot of resources and a lot of time and a lot of um, and and undo a lot of um, negative consequences of our approaches to drugs by. 
taking an alternative approach. Yeah. That's the, that's kind of the end game. It's definitely not utopian because addictions won't go anywhere. No, and 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 on that, I just realised the opioid epidemic, you know, that that exists. I know in in the states, but also the UK and Australia, of legal drugs is there. So, um, of med- medicine, you know, so. Um, there you go. So it's, it's involved. It's both, actually. Mm. So, so that is a good example of why we need to pay attention to business behavior. Mm. I mean, Purdue Pharma obviously behaved appallingly there. But at the same time, quite a lot of those overdose deaths are due to fentanyl contamination of the, mar- of the, the street-based market. And again, you know, some would say, and I, and I think they've got a point, that this also goes to the kind of stigma. When, when people start dying, especially people who've been prescribed for an illness or for pain, and it's not drug users on the streets and, and, and so on that people pay attention, right? Now, the scale of it, I think, is what makes people pay attention as well. But there's something to be said for who's bearing the brunt or who's really experiencing the consequences of these things. But, yeah, you've got a mix there of two different problems. You've got the improperly regulated medicinal uh, opioids and you've got the improperly regulated, in another way, prohibited heroin market. I mean, the, the whole goal of this whole enterprise has been ostensibly to eliminate uh, the use of opioids for non-medical purposes and to ensure access for medical purposes, and neither of them seem to work very well. The U.S. has way too many opiates floating around, it seems. The developing world has none. So the World Health Organization estimates that something like two-thirds, no, it's three-quarters of the world's, do you know what, it's actually four-fifths of the world's population has insufficient access to opioids for pain. Now, that's not just your average headache, right? We're talking about everything from pethidine in childbirth to, to morphine after car accidents and so on, right? There's a lot going on there. Um, people with end-stage cancers and so on. So we've got all these imbalances. But yeah, so the, but they're both regulatory problems of, of kind of related to the same system, but of, of different types. And it does speak to the problem with business after the end of prohibition, but also the problem with a criminalized market yeah. right now. So, Damon, I know that we're running out of time in some ways, but also I do have a question. Firstly, apologise for hijacking your question earlier. <laughs> I thought it was an addition. It was a second question. But on that, just very quickly, a very, very brief, because I do want to hear a bit about you, Damon, before we, we finish up. So what are the incentives? Just, you know, I identify some of those for us, for our listeners to potentially explore that you see why the state might want to be running that prohibition model rather than harm reduction? That, uh, that, that one's not that difficult, really. Anytime you're in an election cycle, just watch how tough on law and order they get. Here in Sweden, we just had an election, and it, it shifted from centre-left to increasingly far-right. The far-right are not in, in government, but they have a lot of authority. It, it's, a, it's an anti-immigration stance, but it's also a very strong law and order stance. It, it really buys votes, and that's not because people are ignorant or nefarious, well, people are concerned about crime on their doorsteps. So it, it is the case that a lot of small-level crime is associated with drugs. And then there is the case that there's a lot of gang violence associated with drugs. And people see that and they're worried about it. And this is another, actually, this is another link with the, with the pandemic I was thinking about, which is the nature of a threat, right? So I think if, if threats are exceptional and they are uh, proximate and they're very severe, you got these kind of characteristics of a threat that will make um, certain kinds of actions more likely. So exceptional, something you've not seen before. And severe, something being very, very uh, threatening, very big. Uh, and proximate, just something that's close to home. Climate change is not in, sufficiently close to home. That's what I mean. It's too far away. 
Uh, whereas the drugs question's always been right on people's doorsteps and it's in their families and they see addiction in their families and they, maybe they've been burgled or maybe whatever, right? Maybe they just don't like having to walk past, you know, a very open drug scene in their city or whatever. But it's very visible and proximate and, and, and so on. And the drug's threat is always, it evolves. So there's a threat of opiates in the early 20th century, and then it's a threat of marijuana, and then it's a, the crack cocaine epidemic, and then it's methamphetamine and so on and so forth. There's always some new drugs threat, so it, it kind of remains exceptional. And it's been posed as, a, as an existential threat to the drugs question. But the, and, and the pandemic is similar. It was very proximate, very exceptional, and very severe. You know, it's just, and I, and I think you, you see, the, it makes it, I think, much easier to take quite uh, draconian measures. But yeah, so, so I don't think it's, it's not, so it, it wins votes, but, it's all, but th that winning of votes is predicated on the fact that people are genuinely concerned about this stuff. You can't just force it on people. People are worried about their communities, and, and that's why harm reduction has, it can be a very difficult sell, because some of its responses are counterintuitive. It's not, let's get rid of the drugs, it's let's, let's deal with the drugs differently. Let's talk about the drugs. Let's talk to people who use drugs differently. Let's listen to what they want in their lives and see what a positive change for them would be. And that's all kind of hard. And it's really hard now after the, after the, the narrative around drugs for all these decades. It's a, it's a whole conversation that needs to, to change. And it is happening, but it's, it's, it's... Just look at Thailand. Thailand's just made big changes to its cannabis laws. And this is a place that was out gunning people down on the streets 20 years ago. All right, so there's... It's quite, it's quite a difference there. Things are happening. So I, I think that, that it's, it's a very easy, I think there's a, there's a very easy sell, which is let's clamp down on drugs, let's take a strong law and order approach. And I think the harder sell, but the right thing to do is more of a harm reduction approach, which incorporates uh, looking again at our laws and policies. Great. I do want to touch on you, Damon, because it was about you. So um... <laughs> You do, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Before we move on, Damon, is there anything on the go? You mentioned a book earlier. Is there anything else on the go that you'd like to let the listeners know about? Funny that you should ask. <laughs> yeah, so uh, for the last few years, we've been developing something called the International Guidelines on Human Rights and Drug Policy. You guys might have noticed and, and listeners would have noticed too that it's, it's, it's complicated because any bit of the whole drugs question you look at might have some human rights implications, whether that's crop eradication in Colombia, the death penalty in Iran, or the provision of addiction services in Melbourne, right? There's, there, there's going to be human rights implications to that. And one of the challenges we had, I mentioned my early work with the right to health was um, when I was at Harm Reduction International, one, one of the challenges we had was people, people would say, okay, you keep talking about human rights in drug policy, but how do human rights apply? And we thought, God, yeah, nobody's, nobody's really put that all down on paper, or in this case, on a website. Myself and my colleague Rick Lines uh, founded something called the International Centre on Human Rights and Drug Policy. It's now at the Human Rights Centre at the University of Essex in the UK. And my, my, my colleague Julie Hanna now runs it. We got funding from the UN Development Programme and from the German and Swiss governments to develop this. So... If you look, there's international guidelines on business and human rights, for example, that were adopted in the UN General Assembly. And there's guidelines on education and human rights and some other things. And they're all really helpful for understanding, okay, well, what are the human rights dimensions of this complex problem? And so we did a similar thing with, with, um, with human rights and drugs. We launched them in 2019, but we've now released them in their entirety with a whole very detailed referential 
uh, reference legal legal commentary to them. So they're available online, and the idea was to give everyone from grassroots activists to diplomats a way to understand how human rights law applies to various questions in drug policy. So it goes everywhere from supply all the way through to use, and then we single out children and women and people in detention and indigenous peoples as specific groups we wanted to pay attention to. And we're hoping that it will be a tool people can use to much more quickly understand um, this field. That, that is very complicated and we're still trying to get our heads around it ourselves. But this took us years and international consultations in every region of the world. And we talked to growers, we talked to people who use drugs, we talked to uh, ministries of justice and health and prosecutors and everybody uh, to pull this together. And, and um, we're hoping it will be a useful tool. So for anyone who's interested, it's humanrights-drugpolicy.org. It's all available to be used for free. That's brilliant. And what an undertaking. Amazing. Um, so we'll definitely make sure that's in the show notes. So, Damon, you, you mentioned earlier that you started off with, a, you know, you, you started your, your studies in law and then you moved, something happened and you moved into Save the Children. What was the yeah. the journey like? What, 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 some, what was the, the catalyst for that change? <laughs> Um, boredom, actually. So, you guys mentioned that you, you, you like to think your 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 podcast is called a moment of clarity, but there's an assumption in there that people had one, or that there was some choice made. I I my, I think my my career path is more like a series of fortunate events. You know, things that more happened to me. I'm not sure how how um, aware I was of the choices I was making. But no, I was in Ireland. I was in Dublin. I was going to be one of the typical high street solicitors. Um, very much like the people I worked with, but um, I thought maybe I need to try something else to see if this is what I want to do for the rest of my life, because I was only 22, and I thought, well, if you get into a career like that, then I'm going to be 50, I'm going to be writing wills and selling houses, and writing contracts and going to court, and the question was, do I want to do that for all that period of time? So I thought I'll spend a year in London and see, just doing something else. I did recruitment for six months, I hated every minute of that. The job, not the people. The people are fine. Um, and then I decided, okay, well, if that's the opposite of what I want to do, what's the opposite of sales? And I went into charity work just because it was the opposite in my head of doing that. But it was somewhere I could use a legal skill. So I went and I worked for an animal welfare organization for, for uh, about two years, again, doing their legacies work. And the only reason I moved to Save the Children was because they had a similar job for more money. <laughs> it was literally just that. Is, is um, doing uh, wills and legacy work for a charity not just a different form of sales? No, because you don't have to do any. You don't really have to do any fundraising. You're doing uh, they, the money's all coming in, and you have to uh, administer you're, it. You're administering, right? Yeah. It's, it's if the uh, I did a bit of fundraising at the animal welfare one, but um, no, you just have to administer it, and and uh, that's actually quite interesting work, believe it or not. But mm. at the time, I was volunteering as well for a small organization in the UK. I never, I didn't leave London. I went for a year, stayed for 12 years uh, and, and, you know, got married and had kids and the way things go. I ended up volunteering via my wife, actually, for uh, a small organization for people with learning disabilities in, in Oxford in the UK. It's called Mencap um, Oxford or Oxford and District Mencap. Brilliant organization that provides respite camps. And I ended up running for a couple of years the children's uh, camp. And I think, I think, there was a crossover there with a desire to focus on children's rights because of 
looking at the difficulties of those families and what, what they were going through. And uh, in, I had a really good manager in my team in Save the Children who let me go and spend one day of my week working in the, in the child rights team instead, which was really, really nice of her. She didn't have to do that. <laughs> and the advice from there was go do a master's degree and come back, which I did, and it worked exactly as they said. I went and did a master's degree, focused my thesis on child rights, and went back and I spent another, uh, I think, two years or so in the child rights, or it was the, I think it was like the policy and research team, but I was doing child rights uh, based uh, policy work for our country teams. And that was the job I said that kind of ran out of funding and I ended up moving into harm reduction. But that's, that's where like, I didn't make a choice. I thought I had no other job and this other human rights job came up in a field I didn't understand. But that's where, um, but that's the place where if there's, it's not a moment of clarity, but it is definitely a moment of realization that I I really like this field and I think I should stay with it mm-hmm. because any, anything you want to do in human rights you can do via drug policy it's, it's so broad uh, and it's such a big question and such a meaningful one for the people affected I've just spent a week at a needle exchange in Stockholm and the complexity of the problems and the amount of work that the needle exchange staff do there for them way beyond exchanging injecting equipment is, is really impressive to see and these are people in a, in a high income country who've just fallen to the bottom of society. And it's it, to, to make improvements in their lives via whatever way you can. Mine is very indirect. I'm an academic and, and sometime advocate. But it's all connected to a, a kind of way of looking at drugs that I think can have really important effects for, for um, development and health and other things. And, and I think I realized that when I saw what people were doing when I got into it back then. Because I was totally green. I had no idea. <laughs> Um, but my first harm reduction conference I went to was in Poland and, and I, I was just so impressed by what people were doing that I thought, okay, this is something I could, I could see myself doing for a career that sounds a lot more rewarding than being a solicitor in Dublin. So I've stuck with it. But now my, my favorite thing I do now is teaching. So and I, I, I kind of, uh, I really like, <laughs> so I teach between, I've just moved from public health. I'm going more into human rights now. Um, but it's, uh, I, I really like doing that, and uh, I think it's also a really good way of having a positive impact in society, of educating well and having people going out thinking critically about public health and human rights, I think, is not such a bad contribution. It's a modest one, but I think it's a good one to have. And, and you said that everything fell on your lap, but it looked like there that you, you made some choices that not many people do to actually question what you're doing and where you're going and and jump in and actually try something and then to actually, you know, you, you mentioned volunteering and moving towards these more meaningful pursuits. That that was a choice there somewhere along the line. So, um, yeah. I sometimes second guess whether I did the volunteering because I really wanted to or because my then girlfriend asked if I wanted to and I didn't want to say no. What better incentive? <laughs> I'm not sure. But um, I think... Uh, I think my advice, if I'm, I'm thinking, sometimes I think about uh, students that, that, I, that I meet and they'll ask about career paths and so on. And I think trying different things is really important. I think there's a, there's a focus on specialization at the moment that I'm not sure is very, very helpful for people. That you need to get expert in this and you need to go down that career path. But I think if you, if you think more broadly, these kinds of serendipitous opportunities might open for you if you're if you're open to doing it because there's a lot of transferable skills I mean I've been teaching in public health for a long time now and um, a lot of those students leave and might struggle to get a quote-unquote public health job 
But the skills they've learned are transferable to a whole load of areas if, if they're interested in them. Yeah. And I think, that's, I think that kind of open-mindedness might, might be helpful for people because I know it's a tough job market at the moment and I feel very lucky to have kind of come through at a time when I guess now in hindsight it was a, a lot easier for me than others. But than the young people, I think than young people now. Um, but yeah, I think that open-mindedness and not feeling totally fixed on one career path might not be such a bad idea for people. I, I think we'll let that out as a moment of clarity, a series of clarities. Um, I watched uh, uh, during lockdown a show with my kids called A Series of Unfortunate Events. We can uh, maybe yours is a series of fortunate events. Yeah, I think I, I think I I think that's exactly what I said. Yeah. <laughs> I think it is. Um, uh, I, no, I think that's 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 I've counted myself as being quite lucky along the way because some of those choices could have gone wrong. The, the only time I think I ever made a big decision that I knew was a big decision at the time was I was doing recruitment. I'd done it for about six months, recruiting into law firms, you know, and it's the only job I've ever left without having another job to go into. I left and I was willing to be unemployed to not work there. That was the only, that was the only time I've ever done that. And I wasn't unemployed for long, but that showed me something, right? That's not for me. Other people are very good at it, but I just was terrible and didn't like it. And I think you just need to walk away from stuff like that. Damon, thank you so much for your time. What, you know, I've taken from this is key questions to, to walk away with for, to sort of understand my point of view about certain things. And if, you know, you hold philosophically human rights at the core of everything you do and, and want to believe in, then... You know, what is the impact of too much state authority or, you know, in, in the COVID approach, for example, what is that that long-term impact mm-hmm. going to be where people have had their lives dictated to them for a while, even with the best of intentions, at least I mm-hmm. believe, uh, what what sort of things are around that and, and mapping out what you've talked about with, you know, healthcare and, and harm reduction in drugs and, and other areas just... Yeah, mm-hmm. it really brings brings it home in a new way for me. So I really appreciate that and, and the amazing work you're doing, which just seems, you know, phenomenal. And um, it's empowering to see, you know, that you're doing something. Everyone can step up and potentially create their own uh, way to, um, yeah, bring a free resource to the world that really will, you know, empower others to make the right call. Yeah. If, if you've got a, other people around you and donors willing to step in and all of that kind of thing, I... Um you know, part of a very, very large team there. But um, no, I hope, I hope the um, I hope the podcast wasn't too rambly or uh, or circular. But uh, you guys can you guys can edit away and make it make sense. No, seriously, it was a really fascinating conversation. I'm really grateful for it. a number of perspectives I hadn't thought about before. So, thank you very, very much. All right, guys, brilliant. No, have right, a nice evening. All right, so, I'll have a Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Moments of Clarity. If you are enjoying the podcast, there are a range of ways you can help us grow and continue to bring our conversations to you. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Moments of Clarity on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast player of your choice. This will ensure you never miss out on an episode. While you are there, you can leave us a review. It really does assist us in getting found by new listeners. However, The biggest way you can help us is to share the podcast with friends, family, colleagues and your social networks. We are hoping to build a community here at Moments of Clarity and want you, loyal listener, to help us build it. 
We would absolutely love to hear from you and always take the time to reply to your messages. You can get in contact with us on Instagram at Moments of Clarity Podcast via our website, moc-pod.com or email hello at moc-pod.com. Thanks again for listening to Moments of Clarity. See you next time.